Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I am Lawrence McDonald, and my guests today are Janet Ranganathan. She's the Vice President for Science and Research here at the World Resources Institute, and Richard Waite. He's an associate in WRI's food program. Welcome, both of you, to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Janet, in preparation for this, I've known you for some time now, but I hadn't looked back at your bio. And it's just really impressive because in addition to your administrative responsibilities overseeing the quality of our research, you continue to produce your own research. And the piece we're going to talk about today, Shifting Diets for a Sustainable Food Future, is really a landmark piece. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm very excited to be talking to you about it today. Uh, it's had quite a lot of um, media uh, visibility, but some of our listeners may not have heard about the report before, but probably if they're listening to a World Resources Institute podcast, they know it's better for the earth to eat less meat and dairy. So what's new in this report? So a great question, Lawrence. Um, I would point to three things. Yes, of course, I think most informed people know that, uh, you know, diets that are high in, in meat and dairy um, are, are also highly impactful on the environment. And what we did here in this report is we um, expanded how we were looking at greenhouse gas emissions to provide a more complete picture by looking at land use emissions, so, so that was new. The second thing I would say is that you often sort of see very extreme diets modeled to say, okay, what if everyone became a vegan? What, what, what benefits would that have for the environment? So we deliberately tried to model more realistic diets here, like the Mediterranean diet, like people not giving up meat, but perhaps shifting to, um, to pork and chicken from beef. Um, and then thirdly, the critical question of how to shift diets. I mean, often you, you read a report and then the last two sentences will say that, and people need to shift their diets. And it doesn't say anything about how to do that. So um, we very much wanted to offer up something more there. And so uh, the last section and the, the inclusion of the shift wheel was an attempt to do that. Um, I want to get into both how individuals shift their diet and your, I think, quite ambitious proposal for how the entire a rich world would shift its diet. Um, but first, I think it's useful to think in terms of the gap that you identified between the food that's going to be needed, what was it, by 2050, and the food that's available. Rich, do you want to talk about that food gap and yeah. why shifting diets can help to fill it? Sure. Well, so that, I mean, so I should mention, so this Shifting Diets for a Sustainable Food Future, it's the 11th chapter in this Creating a Sustainable Food Future series which examines this overall challenge of how by 2050 are we going to feed a world that's going to have nearly 10 billion people in it um, that's going to require about 70% more food than we have today. How are we going to do that in a way that advances human development but also reduces pressure on the environment, namely on land um, and on freshwater and on the climate? So through this series, we've, um, we've looked at solutions on the production side, how to produce more food and do it in a more sustainable way, how to increase the productivity of crops or of livestock or of uh, aquaculture, fish farming. That's traditionally what it's been all about. That's exactly. The Green Revolution was all about increasing and production. Exactly. Right? And that's where the conversation on how to sustainably feed a growing population often goes in that direction. How can we produce more food? But the good news is we wouldn't have to produce 70% more food um, if we can also sh look at the consumption side. So that gets into solutions like reducing food loss and waste, gets into the food versus fuel question, right? Reducing um, competition with bioenergy for food crops and for agricultural land. Um, and then this question of shifting diets and namely shifting from more resource intensive to less resource intensive diets um, as a way to sort of, sort of open up planetary space to feed a growing population. Of course, there's still a lot of people in the world who are hungry. 
right? I mean, is this for them? Are we talking to them about shifting their diet? Um, well, this report, in a way, is thinking about them. But uh, no, it's actually targeted on the over-consumers, so uh, rich countries, developed countries, but also those that are starting to rise, you know, the emerging economies, as people join the, um, the, 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 the billions of uh, middle-class people. Um, but why it relates to the under-consumers is that we need to make some room for them. We need to make some room so that they can actually consume more. So we need to bring down some of the over-consuming countries and peak earlier what I would call the, the rising consumers. And I guess there's also a, a modeling effect, perhaps, I think you mentioned in the report, through the effects of big food marketing corporations and just through what people see in, in movies and television, a sense that if you're becoming developed, you should probably eat like an American, which we know has both health impacts and environmental impacts. And I was struck, I'm sure you saw it, Janet, this week the report on obesity in the countryside in China has gone from 1% to 17% among boys, if I'm remembering correctly. So there's two and a half times more um, overweight and obese people in this world than, than hungry people. And that's kind of a certainly changed in my, my lifetime. So one in three people globally overweight and one in 10 obese. So this is an epidemic. It's uh, of large scales and it's not just, li it's just not limited to the developed world. It's also happening um, across the globe. That's right. This, this the world is really converging towards a sort of Western-style diet that's high in calories, high in protein, and also high in animal-based foods, the meat, the dairy, the fish, and the eggs. So, Janet, I know you're, hope you don't mind me disclosing, you've, you've said it in your writing, you're a vegetarian. I'm interested in Rich's story because you're not so much a vegetarian. You were telling me before the show you're a person who is accustomed with milk on your cereal in the morning, meat in your sandwich at lunch, and meat or fish or chicken for dinner. So you're having animal protein three times a day. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, that was one of the things that surprised me as I worked on this paper. You know, I had, had known all along that diets lower in meat and dairy, um, you know, were better for the environment. But I never thought really of myself as a high consumer uh, until I started thinking meal by meal what I was, you know, what I was actually consuming. So as we, as we went through, you know, the, the three different diet shifts in the paper, right, reducing overconsumption of calories, reducing overconsumption of protein by really targeting that meat and dairy, trying to bring in, down your meat and dairy consumption, and then within that, reducing um, beef specifically. And so if I think across those three, now when I plan out my meals, um, I try to implement those as much as possible. So um, especially the, you know, the, 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 the meat and dairy, right? I still have milk in my cereal in the morning. It's, you know, it's kind of hard to change that one. That's my automatic meal of the day, but you know, for lunch, whereas I used to get a sandwich with meat in it most days, now I try to go pretty much vegetarian or vegan for, for lunch just because there's so many options out there of things that I can buy. Um, and then for dinner, yeah, I probably shifted about halfway um, towards vegetarian meals. And I've certainly cut down on my beef. It's sort of like a, a luxury in my diet these days. I probably only have it once or twice a month. Janet, if we could persuade everybody in the United States to do what Rich had done, what sort of impact would that have on well, if, emissions, yeah, climate I mean, change. You know, there's this, the, if, if, if we actually got the, um, the average American to consume half as much meat, um, they could actually reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and land use impacts by about the same amount. So that's quite considerable. And if you sort of scale that up globally, you're talking about sort of say, potentially um, saving an area of land about uh, twice as much as India. Twice as much as India. Correct. That's the uh, the ambitious uh, protein reduction scenario applied to over about two billion over consumers globally. Gives you that in land, and um, it gives you about uh, three 
times the global emissions in the one-shot one sort of sequestration benefits or avoided deforestation related to this that. This is reducing land use by twice as much as India's currently farmed area? India's entire surface area. That's astonishing. And what's interesting about that number, I mean, that's, so it's more than 600 million hectares. That's, that's twice the size of India. It's also more than the entire amount of agricultural expansion over the past 50 years. So the, the new cropland and the new pasture that's been brought you know, under, the, under the plow, most of that has been at the expense of forests. And so basically what we're saying is if we could do these kinds of diet shifts at a big scale and free up that much land, that's land that then could be used to, to feed the growing and more increase, increasingly affluent population and really reduce agriculture's pressure on, the, on forests. You have a magnificent idea for how this might be achieved globally. It's really quite moving. I'm going to come to that in the second half. You call it the shift wheel. But before we get to the shift wheel, I want to probe a little bit on beef. That's your third thing. One is fewer calories. And I think most of us feel we could do with having fewer calories. I get that one. One is less meat overall. Why are you picking on beef? Yeah, so what's our beef with beef? That's... Um, <laughs> I mean, I was surprised by some of the results of beef. As I mentioned earlier, you know, we did a more fuller accounting of the greenhouse gas impacts of different food choices. Um, so on, on land use, beef, uh, beef really, you know, had a, had a big, big greenhouse gas impact. Um, and, and some of it sort of reflects the fact that, you know, cattle isn't a very efficient way of serving up calories or protein. So is, is this, if you'll excuse me, is this because cows fart? Uh, well, that's, that's a... A lot of it comes from burps too, so I don't want to sort of put it all at that end of the problem. Um, but no, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly that. It's to do with the ruminant system, but it's also to the huge amounts of land that you need um, to, 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 for, for cattle. So 1% of the, you know, the input that goes into a cow come, you know, sorry. So every, you know, 100, 100 tons of, you know, edible input into a cow, only one ton of edible input in terms of calories are usable by, by humans. So, so it's a very inefficient system. For feed, you get one pound of meat. Exactly. A 1% conversion well, actually, rate, actually, would you call that 1% conversion rate? 1% efficiency. Efficiency. It's actually, it's for every 100 calories of feed, you'll get one calorie of beef so that you can eat. So it's, it's similar, right? It's, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. So imagine if you had an air conditioner that was only 1% efficient, you know, you'd want to upgrade to a more efficient one. So, you know, pork's about 9% efficient, and poultry is 11% efficient, which is why you, you see some of those benefits of those shifts. Yeah, and so that's why it takes much less land, much less water, much less, and it emits less greenhouse gas emissions to produce these other meats than it, than it does to produce beef, because they're just more efficient converters of feed to food. I, I think of my father growing up as a working class uh, guy in northern Michigan, uh, European immigrants. My sense is they didn't eat meat that often. They were poor. When they ate it, it was mostly pork. And then he became a middle-class person and, you know, raised me as a middle-class person, and beef was kind of the go-to meat. And it's what's for dinner. Is, 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 was that the advertising well, slogan? Yeah, right. And so there's been this shift towards more and more beef uh, within, you know, within my own family. So I've got to jump in here in respect of my father. My father's uh, from Yorkshire. So, you know, Yorkshire, it's, you know, you know, it's Yorkshire puddings and beef. You know, that was the Sunday luxury lunch that we always enjoyed. Um, so we're not saying no beef. Um, we're, we're saying, you know, maybe it's more of an occasional um, meal rather than something you eat regularly. So um, I, I do want to sort of impress that we're, we're, not, we're not imposing giving up beef here, but just less of it. 
We're going to take a break on that note. You don't have to give up beef. We hope you'll keep listening. In the second half of the show, I'm going to be asking uh, Janet and Rich about the shift wheel and how we can change not only Rich's diet, but everybody else around the world who is putting more of a uh, burden on the climate and the environment than they need to. This is the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. We will be back in a bit. Each year, one-third of all food is lost or wasted between the farm and the plate, causing major impact on people, the economy, and the environment. Curbing food loss and waste is becoming an international priority, but most governments and companies don't know where to start to reduce food loss and waste within their national borders, corporate operations, or supply chains. The new Food Loss and Waste Accounting and Reporting Standard provides globally consistent, practical, best practice guidance on what to measure and how to measure it. Learn more at flwprotocol.org. Welcome back to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. My guests today are Janet Raganathan, the Vice President for Science and Research here at the World Resources Institute, and Rich Waite, an associate in WRI's food program. We're talking about their terrific new study, Shifting Diets for a Sustainable Food Future. In the first portion, we heard about why and how people can reduce their footprint, uh, their environmental footprint, by eating less meat, uh, eating fewer calories, and in particular, eating less beef. Janet, during the break, you were saying that you weren't entirely blameless, that you, you too had a learning. Rich learned that he didn't need to eat meat for every meal. But uh, as a vegetarian, you also discovered something. What was that? Well, that's, that's true. I had to get down from my um, high horse somewhat. So the vegetarian diet, um, when, when it was modeled, didn't actually come out um, much better than the, um, the shift to sort of poultry and pork. And um, that was in large part because um, I have a lot of dairy. I, I enjoy cheese on almost everything. But that dairy um, has actually a much higher land use and greenhouse gas impact than, than I'd actually um, appreciated. So I, I had to sort of eat some, um, eat, what's the word? Eat, eat humble some, pie? Exactly, <laughs> humble pie, yeah. With no cheese on it. Yeah, so, so yeah, they, small, they didn't let me forget that one. Small of humble pie, you don't want to eat yeah, right. so, overconsumed. So pound for pound, is cheese better or worse than pork? Um, it comes somewhere in between, if I remember rightly, of our, our results. It's, it's, it's uh, sort of between pork and beef. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's it's much closer to the other meats than it is for beef. Beef is really the one. Um, beef and the other ruminants, sheep and goat, are the ones that stand head and shoulders above all the others. And then dairy is much much lower. And then the, the other meats and, and eggs are just a little bit lower. So than so that. dairy so would be closer to sort of chicken. Exactly. So I mean, so so basically, the it's like if you're shifting from chicken to dairy you're not going to really get an environmental benefit. If you shift from beef to dairy or beef to chicken, then you will. Take a look at our little protein scorecard. Um, it, it's That's all right. you need. You can whip that out next time you're thinking about what you're going to put in your shopping basket. I'm, I'm going to clip it and keep it in my wallet. The protein <laughs> exactly. scorecard, we'll make sure we link to that uh, on the uh, podcast summary. So I want to shift now to the shift wheel. And I think we've explained why it's a great idea, uh, both environmentally and for your health, to eat uh, less eat less meat, in particular eat less beef. Uh, what's the idea, Janet, of this shift wheel? Who is this for? Is this for consumers? Um, so let me just sort of back up a little bit. One of our co-authors on the paper, Daniel Venard, 
um, has worked in the private sector for many years um, and had a lot of experience in how the, the private sector markets and shifts people's preferences. So um, I want to recognize him as the sort of the, 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 the brains behind this. Um, but um, what we did is we looked at, when we, when we saw the, the, big, the big value that could be had from shifts, we said, well, let's learn from what's been done already to shift diets. And what we found was that much of the efforts sort of focused on you know, information, education, campaigns around abstinence like Meatless Monday. And yes, they've had some effects, but usually you know, effects on the willing, the ones that are easy to move. And like, like me. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, maybe even a little bit of rich, but what about the rest of us? What about my you know, Yorkshire pudding, beef-loving faber? Um, so so we, we wanted to look more about well, what can we learn from the private sector? So we looked at about a dozen successful shifts in consumptive behavior um, that had taken place and said, what can we learn from those? And from there, we saw there was four commonly used tactics, which you'll see in, embedded in, in the shift wheel. So this is basically using uh, marketing tools and other devices to achieve this shift worldwide. Yes, it's marketing and sort of behavioral economics, of which the private sector, they know how to do this very well. Um, and and we, can, we can learn a lot from it, and we want to apply that to this societal challenge. I want to unpack the wheel, but Rich, first, why would a company want to do this? They're in the business of selling more stuff, selling more cheese and meat and poultry, and you know they're not going to be rushing to us and saying, this is a great idea, we'll get people to buy less of our product. Right, well, I mean, it's, it's, so, so, as, so after we, I mean, we, we first start off looking at what kinds of initiatives out there are out there to shift people, and there's a lot of these information education campaigns. But then we said, okay, what are some successful large-scale sh consumption shifts that have happened? And we found in like 10 or 20 of these. Um, and these were things like um, a shift from higher alcohol to lower alcohol beer in the UK, a shift away from unsustainable shark fin consumption in China. Um, we looked not only at the food sector, we looked at things like the shift from um, incandescent to the CFL or LED light bulbs that have taken place, you know, sort of all over. Um, we looked at, you know, what are the commonalities? And one of the things that actually came out of it is that in almost every case, um, the private sector was involved and there was a financial benefit to the private sector, right? You, we weren't, we're not just talking about shifts away from something, but shifts from something to something else. And if there's a shift from a one product to another, that doesn't have to mean that it can negatively impact the bottom line, and in, in many cases, it can positively impact. And we can we can get into sort so of. So if I'm a yeah. food service provider and I'm providing a wider range range of foods, and I can substitute a less expensive plant protein for the cheese or the meat that would have gone into it, you're that's such savings, a quick right? study, yeah. Lawrence. That's exactly right. I mean, when that's we it. first, so, so first of all, let me say I actually think the shift wheel is relevant to a variety of consumption shifts. I don't think it's just useful for food. In fact, some of the shifts that we looked at were not food related. So I think it's potentially a very useful tool. We want to experiment with it and see if it works and test it out. But I think it's a potential tool for sustainable consumption more broadly. But I think that the issue of foods and converging diets globally is what I like to say, the, the mother of all sustainability challenges. So we're gonna focus on this first. We picked the food services sector. We played around with this a bit. First of all, we thought you know, we'd do the food, food retailers, and then we figured, no, actually, there's a much stronger and more compelling case to actually engage the food services sector. So like you know, your restaurant change, your cafeterias, your office cafeterias. So, so we're going to convene an initiative called the, um, the Better Buying Lab, 
and we're going to uh, work with leading companies um, that are in the food services sector to apply the shift wheel to specific parts of their businesses where we think we can um, in, you know, increase the share of plant-based protein in a particular product line or, or, or location. So I want to run through the shift wheel. We're coming up on the end here and I'm looking at it in front of me. It's, it's really, I encourage everybody to look at it. It's such an effective teaching mechanism. The um, upper left hand uh, quadrant, if you will, in this wheel evolves social norms. I think we know that one. That's what people think of when they think of changes. Make it socially unacceptable. Make it socially desirable. Inform about the issue. A lot of the eat less meat, the meatless Mondays in the faith communities, that's there. We know about that. So I'm going to skip over that and I'm going to this minimize disruption. Things like replicate the experience, disguise the change, that sounds sneaky, form habits in new markets. What's, what is in this bundle of minimizing disruption? So it, it sort of recognizes that um, a lot of the um, consumption behavior, like what ends up in your supermarket basket at the, when you're at the checkout, is based on habit. It's like you, you, you go through this sort of unconscious thing of picking the things that you, you usually use to, to make a meal or whatever. So that one's saying, okay, rather than trying to so completely break those habits, let's try and work in sync with those habits. So if you go to the refrigerated section to get your milk, you know, that's a good place to put a milk alternative like soya milk or, or almond milk or something else. So it's saying, you know, look, look, you know, minimize the disruption to the consumer in what the normal purchasing behavior is. So mix some soy protein in with the beef. Give me so an option to get it, a yeah. thing so, that looks like beef and maybe has some yes. beef in so it. So all the fake meat stuff. burgers and vegetarian burgers are doing the same thing. It's all like you want something that looks like a beef burger that you can put in your um, hot dog, then, then, then let's, let's make it look like that. Okay, minimize disruption. So the, the veggie burger is our iconic yep. thing for minimizing disruption. What about selling a compelling benefit? Yeah, so, so, so that one is sort of like, again, sort of meet the consumer where they are. So even, you know, the most eco-conscious consumer who will say, you know, I, I'll make decisions based on sustainability or animal welfare, ethical considerations. When push comes to shove, they're actually probably going to be making their purchasing decisions on things like price and on taste, perceived quality, food safety, and so on. And, the, you know, the environmental considerations go lower. So that's sort of, if you, if you want to shift someone from food A to food B, think about making food A, food B cheaper than food A. Or I see here better, it says or, enhance affordability. If I've been editing this wheel, I might have said make it cheaper. Yeah, make it <laughs> cheaper, exactly. Um, but the, I mean, so, so one example of that is when the, uh, in the UK when, when the beverage industry is trying to figure out oh, how can we move customers from higher alcohol to lower alcohol beer, people weren't really interested in the low alcohol benefit. They didn't per perceive it as a benefit. But one, one thing that they did is they um, they, they put in some new flavors, some ginger and some lime, and they marketed it as, as a light refreshment, you know, the taste of summer. Um, and so now people are buying this, and it's, it's, it's lower in alcohol, but, but sales have been going up. I wanted to give you another example, too, that I, I found quite compelling. So um, fish fingers, or fish sticks, as they call them here, that's actually in the UK, that's where the majority of people have their first encounter with fish as children. Um, but anyway, codfish fingers are sort of a revered um, fish within codfish fingers. I grew up eating them. Love yeah, them. Yeah, but, but the cod is, you know, is an endangered species. And so, you know, the fish industry very much wanted to shift people to a more sustainable fish source, pollock in fact. But, you know, after many, you know, ill-fated efforts to try and get people to eat pollock fish fingers, which they, they rejected, they like the whiteness and the cod, um, the, uh, the, fifth, uh, the fish marketers found out that there was actually more omega-3 
in Pollock than cod. So someone had that interesting factoid. And that's when people are, you know, thinking about omega-3, it's a great health benefit. So they actually started marketing the Pollock just as omega-3 enriched fish fingers. And people went for it. They didn't, you know, on the back, it told you what it was, but that's not, that wasn't the compelling benefit. The compelling benefit was omega-3, and that, and that actually was a very successful shift. And the uh, fourth one, maximize awareness. And there's a little contradiction here, or a seeming contradiction, constrained display and enhanced display. So the constrained display is for the thing that you're trying to shift people away from. Um, it's why now, actually, by the way, you don't see confectionery in the checkout aisle, you know, because that's related back to that obesity issue. The, you know. the candy. Yeah, you know, because you know, you know, that they put it there because it's where you see it, it's where you buy it. Um, but, but it's more about enhancing awareness of, of the, the product that you're trying to shift to. So in this case, you know, the, 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 the plant-based protein sources. I think we're going to wrap up. If you could leave our listeners with one message, I'm going to go to Rich first so Janet can have the last word. Rich, what would you tell them the most important thing to take away from this study is? I mean, I would say on, you know, on an individual's basis, if you're trying to think about what to eat, shifting your, shifting your diet um, and reducing your diet's environmental footprint doesn't have to be hard. You're not, we're not talking about, all, not, it's not that everyone has to become vegan, not that everyone has to become vegetarian. You can make some relatively small manageable shifts, maybe shifting part of your beef consumption to other meats, shifting your meat and dairy consumption towards more plant-based foods. Um, there's lots of little tweaks that you can do sort of at every meal um, that you know you have to completely change your lifestyle um, while also you having a big impact. Terrific. Janet, I've given you the hard part by making you go yeah, after no, Rich. Yeah, he always has a good last yeah. word, so yeah, I have to go after him. But um, a, co a couple of things, really. I mean, I, I read some of the commentary to the various blogs that have been written on the paper, and one of the, one of the ones that keeps coming back is, well, isn't it all about the population, you know, the, the number of mouths uh, that we need to feed? Isn't that the real problem here? Not, not all this stuff that you're talking about. But, so, you know, I think that's part of the problem, but I think a big part of the problem is also what we're putting in those mouths, and that's what this um, paper's about. The second point I would say is that when people think about sustainability in food, they often think about how is that food produced. And I'd say, yeah, of course that's important. You know, is it, you know, is it certified? Is it, you know, is it organic? You know, is it what, this free, that free? So that's important. But I would say, let's also think beyond that to the type of food that we put in our mouth. It's not just how the food is produced, it's what food we eat. And I think that's a kind of key message of the, um, the paper. Thank you both. I thought I knew this topic pretty well, and I learned a lot. So thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having yeah, us. Thanks for having us. This is the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. My guests today have been Richard Waite and Janet Ranganathan, and we've been talking about the terrific new paper. And I should say, they've got a, a handful of other highly accomplished co-authors. I urge you to take a look at the report, and especially at the uh, shift wheel and many other graphics embedded there. Uh, the report is called Shifting Diets for a Sustainable Food Future. Uh, tune in next time for a, another discussion of new policies and opportunities at the intersection between poverty reduction and a sustainable planet. Thank you.